You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And now that heart is beating fast, and that's the rhythm I can dance to. Oh, I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to, that one big heart that's beating fast. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble and drunk. Beat out old trouble and drum. Beat out old trouble and drum. And kick all trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Welcome to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program will be podcast within the next 24 to 48 hours. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Hello, world's greatest producer, Kelly Whitworth. Hello, Joe. How are you? You On this sunny Wednesday in... August. Well, it's spring tomorrow. Spring tomorrow, but we're sitting in a bloody room and, the, and, and there's four different coloured walls and there's fluorescent lights on. I can't see any sun. How can you see sun? I have a life outside the studio. You're kidding. I do. I just thought you're such a great person. You just thought person. I lived here all the time. Well, because you do so many things here at 3CR. It's just amazing. I mean, I, I, I'm honoured to actually be in the same room as you. You should be. Yeah, and and I'm also a chronic confabulator. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I'm sure our guest doesn't know what she's in for. Look, this is Radical Australia. We talk to a fascinating person every week. We have a very fascinating person. The only problem is she's in Sin City, so she's not sitting in the studio, but she will be in Melbourne next week. Or is it the week after? No, yeah, next week, next Sunday. So... Sophie Shu, how are you? Hi there, John. Very well. How are you? I'm brilliantly well, and Kelly's good. Look, what usually happens is I talk to you, and if I get out of order, or Kelly's got interesting thoughts, she'll jump in and ask a question. Now, look, it's very simple. You've got 54 minutes, no music, no community announcements, just you, me, and Kelly. How do you feel about that? That sounds absolutely brilliant. That's such an honour to be in conversation with both of you. Oh, well, thanks, Sophie. Yeah. And likewise. Yeah, and she means it, yeah, unlike yeah, me. Sophie means it, unlike you. <laughs> exactly. Now, Sophie, I think for the first half hour or so, if you'll put up with me, we'll just go through your little progression through life and then we'll look at your uh, fascinating book, which is going to be launched here on the at the West Papuan um, Gathering uh, Rent Collective Gathering on the 11th of September. Now, Sophie, what year were you born? I was born in 1987. You're a youngster. 80, Relatively. 87. And were you born in Australia or overseas? I was born overseas in Paris. In Paris? Mm-hmm. I like this. How come you were born in Paris? What's, what, what, who are your parents? What... what Ah, kinship. The question of kinship. Great place to start. Um, So my mom is French Mm -hmm. and my father is Chinese. So I'm of a bicultural background. Right. In Paris. That's right. I grew up in Hong Kong, actually. um, Mm -hmm. But my mom is originally from Paris. And my father, originally from mainland China, um, but was then a refugee in Taiwan, um, where he moved to after the communists came to power on the mainland. Right. So what, he moved in 4950 to Taiwan? Exactly. And then what, he moved to Paris? And then he moved to Paris, met my mother, um, and then they both moved to Hong Kong um, for work, primarily. That sounds pretty, doesn't sound that exciting. They moved to Hong Kong to work and they were living in Paris and they left Paris. What's going on? 
they've been they, they're quite nomadic I just put it that way as have I been um, <laughs> after Hong Kong it was the UK um, Indonesia and since 2015 Australia so what type of work did they do that they were nomads uh, so my mother was a French teacher, um, mm-hmm. so she was a tutor, university lecturer, um, and my father sort of didn't really find his professional way until he met my mum, and then he sort of jumped into business primarily, sporting goods, um, yeah, business world. Seems a bit strange that he only found his way after he met your mum. You're telling me that adage that it, behind every man there's a great woman. I think that holds true in this instance. Um, he was, I think, still living at home in his mid-30s to late 40s when I met my mum, <laughs> and she decided that things would be otherwise. Well, I don't blame her. No wonder they're nomads. They're trying to get away from their uh, background, <laughs> from the rallies, <laughs> yeah. from the rallies. It's like here, I don't know if you have it in Sydney, but in Melbourne we have young Japanese couples and Vietnamese couples and Chinese couples coming here to get married because mm. it's cheaper than getting married in there. Their own place. They just and there's no relatives around. It's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, freedom. Yeah, it is. If you've got an afternoon, just go down to the uh, treasury, uh, tr- uh, the treasury building in uh, Spring Street, and you'll see them wandering in and out, posing for photos. But that's another story, Sophie. <laughs> so, how did your education progress? You know, you're it's pretty checkered, moving here, there, and everywhere. Did you make any friends? Um, I mean, most of my high school, primary school and high school education was in Hong Kong, um, so I was able to make friends. But Hong Kong is a very transitory sort of city, um, lots of expats who are there for a few years and then moving on. So it's actually quite hard to sustain long-term friendships um, with people from my sort of teenage years. Um, I think most of my long-term friends I actually made later in life at university when I moved to the UK, um, seven years in the UK. Um, so those are most of my professional and personal connections are with people from that particular space, more than Hong Kong in some ways. Mm. Going back to your schooling in Hong Kong, mm. um, what was primary school like? Primary school, gosh, it's like a long time ago now. Are you born um, in... No, no, look, don't, don't fudge this question. You were born in 1987. I was born in 51. So, you know, it's a long time since I went to primary school. You just went a few years ago. That is true. I've got no excuse. Okay, <laughs> no. um, okay. let me try and rack my... I mean, I've got really fond memories, actually, of primary school. Um, it was a very, very multicultural environment to be in um, with people from all across Southeast Asia, um, East Asia, Europe, the US as well. All of this, of course, before the handover of 97, when things changed a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I remember encountering a lot, lots of different cultures, and I think that was actually one of the reasons I ended up being so interested in culture, um, was, um, you know, from that early experience of encountering people coming from all kinds of social backgrounds and bringing different kinds of worldviews into their education. Mm. So was it an English-language-based education in primary school? Absolutely. Um, English based in primary and also in secondary. I was in an international school. Mm. And what what language did your parents speak at home? (laughs) Bit of a mix. Um, We spoke French, Mandarin and English. Um, Often my parents would speak to me in their native tongue. I'd reply in English because that was my schooling language. Mm. Um, But we were, you know, fluent in all three and often depended on our mood. Um, Certain moods are best expressed in one language over another, is what we came to discover. (laughs) Yes, when they were angry, it was the native tongue, I assume. Absolutely. It's quite hard to be angry and sustain anger when you're tripping on your words. (laughs) Yes, it is. It is. Any, any, Any brothers and sisters? Yes, I've got one younger brother. He's a couple of years younger than me. Mm. Um, love him to bits. Um, don't see him anywhere as much as I'd like to. He's based in Paris. Well, he's smart. <laughs> he's smart, isn't he? He's based in Paris. He is. What does he, he do? What does he do in Paris? Don't tell me he sells sporting goods. No, he doesn't. He's a high school teacher. Biology right. and chemistry are his areas of expertise. <laughs> so he's. So does he teach in a French-speaking school or? Um, he teaches at the British School of Paris, which oh. is an English language school, um, right. yeah, primarily for yeah, British expats, I suppose, mm. living, in, living in Paris. And then how did you two little toddlers get on? Very well. Oh. Again, I, yeah, I, I, I love him to bits. Um, he's a very funny, quirky, eccentric, brilliant young man, um, so we were always very, very close. Um, and, yeah, try to remain so as much as we can, despite the geographic distance and the massive time difference. <laughs> so that, that means you were quirky and brilliant also. 
Well, I don't think I was quite as quirky and brilliant as he is, as right. he often reminds me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Bruce, the gods will strike him down, I think, for that. Exactly. He shall be smitten. He shall be smitten. So what was high school like? Um, high school? Oh, let me think. I mean, I was... I love to study. I really, I, I, I had some incredible mentor figures among my teachers. So I really remember school less in terms of my friendships and social networks than in terms of the instructors that I had who challenged me to think beyond the bounds of what I thought was possible um, and to be really sort of creative and open-minded. Um, so I can think of two teachers in particular, my history teacher and my literature teacher, um, who were really, really influential figures and shaped my high school education um, by pushing me to think otherwise and more generously, I think. Can we thank them by actually naming them for producing such a brilliant person as yourself? <laughs> Oh, gosh, I would love to name them as part of the recognition of the mentorship. Um, yes, one was David Heaton, who was my English and history teacher from the age of really eight or nine onwards. Um, and the other was Dr. Kavita Matai, who was my literature teacher. Um, and the two of them together had the most wonderful pedagogical approach to teaching and learning, where it was always a conversation and we were on the same level um, rather than sort of senior and junior. Um, and they both really, yeah, opened my eyes and my ears and my heart and mind, I think, um, to critical thinking in a way that was really unique and precious. So I, I want to acknowledge David and Kavita for everything they gifted me with in those early years. So... If you didn't have those brilliant teachers, you wouldn't be who you are. Is that what you're telling me? Mm. I mm. think that's correct, um, Joe. Those two, alongside other mentors that I was really blessed to encounter in my personal and intellectual and professional journeys, um, have really made all the difference. And so everything I produce or generate, including the book that you mentioned, I very much see as the outcome of a collective journey that I've made. Um, and that's been really enabled and supported by figures like that who have punctuated my life at all the right moments and in all the right places. You must be gifted by the gods, I think. No one human being could be so lucky. They must be looking after you. I don't know which god it is, but there's somebody out there looking after you, Sophie. I think you're absolutely right, Joe. Because absolutely. Mo most of the people we interview tell us horror stories about their lives. You're telling me you've got a, you had a perfect... Now, come on, tell us about the horror stories at university when you got to London. <laughs> the horror stories of university. Um... Yeah, so I, I never actually been to the UK until I landed um, for my, you know, first undergrad and then my postgrad degree. Um, I was at Oxford, so I discovered a very different kind of world. Um, suddenly, class and status um, became a lot more part of the terrains of everyday life and having to negotiate and navigate those. Um, so that was that was quite challenging. Um, the, the, the degrees were great, um, but I think it was the travel that I did outside the degrees where I learned the most, to be honest with you, Joe. Um, what do you mean travels outside the degree? What was the degree anyway? Mm, so my undergrad degree was in Chinese and Tibetan studies. Um, mm. I'd actually spent quite a lot of time in Tibet um, when I was a teenager, traveling with my parents, but also then volunteering as an English teacher in a local monastery, right. um, whose uh, lamas I had great connections with from 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 before. Um, so Tibet was really my first place of passion, um, particularly questions of justice and injustice in this ongoingly settler colonized part of China. Um, and so I travelled a lot to Tibet throughout my undergrad and masters and degrees at what? Oxford. So um, you you had no problems with the Chinese government allowing you in and out. Mm -hmm. Not for the first few years. Um, once I started getting more involved in human rights advocacy movements um, mm. in London, then the situation changed. Um, I was blacklisted from China in 2008 during the Olympic Games for um, climbing on Notre Dame in Paris and hanging up posters um, in support of the Tibetan cause. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, things changed once I started becoming much more involved in, in, in the activism. Right. So you've never been back to Tibet since 2008? I've managed to go back a couple of times on tourist visas. Um, my father was instrumental in helping me get those past permits and um, being Chinese himself, um, but it's always been a bit touch and go. A bit touch and go. Oh, I'm pleased mm. we're talking to you from Sydney, not some jail in Beijing. Did, yeah. did you, when, you went, when you went, when your father organised these uh, visas and things, did you, did you feel concerned? Yes. 
Absolutely. I always did. Um, because there's, of course, this huge ethical question, that, ethical question that arises when you're doing activism on behalf of peoples in places where you are not yourself based, mm. um, the risk of that having negative repercussions for them. Um, with my father, it was a really interesting situation because he's Han Chinese himself. Um, he fled China because of the rise of the Communist Party. Um, my earliest memory as a child was when I was two with him in Tiananmen Square when he was supporting the students. Um, so he was himself a profound, is a profound advocate of human rights um, and the rights of ethnic minorities. So he was incredibly supportive of everything I was doing, um, even as, of course, it was raising some difficult questions for him in terms of his own identity as a Han Chinese person. Um, so some interesting conversations um, grew out of, out of activism as well. And what can you remember as a two-year-old about the events in Tiananmen Square in 1989? Most of what I remember is what my mother tells me. Um, when I was at Tiananmen, apparently the, f the first thing I said when I arrived was in French, beaucoup vélo, beaucoup drapeau, which means many bicycles and many flags. Right. <laughs> so that's what I observed of this place. Um, I remember the heat, I remember the light, um, I remember my father distributing food and newspapers to the students. I remember the tents pitched up in the square. I remember my mother being very, very anxious uh, because my father was full of hope for this turning point mm. in China's political trajectory. But my mother was far less optimistic. And in the end, she turns out that she was very much right and um, that something bad was going to happen. Um, so I remember her worry more than anything. So how did your family get out of China after 89? Because obviously he would, your father would have had a... Did he have a Taiwanese citizenship as well as Chinese citizenship? That's right, yes. He had dual citizenship. Um, so he actually went back. We went back to Beijing from Hong Kong, specifically in the build-up to Tiananmen, because my father absolutely wanted to go back to the homeland to support the, the democracy movement. Uh, so we were only there, really, for a couple of weeks. Um, and then my mother insisted that we leave. She was just, she was anticipating something, you know, she was anticipating a, a crisis of thoughts. And so she actually took me back to Hong Kong a day before the massacre happened. Uh, my father decided to stay, um, and so he saw what happened. Um, but he was thankfully able to leave uh, because of the fact that he had Taiwanese citizenship. Right. Now... After your undergraduate degree at Oxford, uh, did you pursue further studies? Yeah, I then went on to do a master's in um, anthropology at Oxford. Um, so shifting my gaze a little bit away from the region of Tibet and China and more towards this broader discipline or practice of trying to understand human beings through their cultural and social um, environments and contexts. So that was a one-year degree um, that I pursued uh, before then going off into um, the, yeah, into a professional direction. Professional direction. I like that. What does that mean? Teaching? <laughs> so um, I, you know, at the time when I finished the, my, my master's, I'd been at Oxford for six years, and I could easily have gone into sort of a PhD route, um, yeah. as many of my instructors were encouraging me to do. But I didn't feel that it was the right time, Joe. I wanted to get some real-world experience. I wanted to continue being involved in the advocacy and activism that had been so seminal to you know everything in my life so far. And so I left um, university, and I went to work for an indigenous rights NGO called the Forest People's Program uh, that's based just outside of Oxford, uh, and that works by partnering with indigenous communities across the tropics and supporting them to secure their rights to land and seek redress and remedy for the violations of their rights to territory and to culture. So that's, that was the beginning of my work in the sort of NGO, not-for-profit not space. So what did you actually do in that position? What, what was your role? Was it organising, uh, research? Yeah, so I was working primarily in Southeast Asia and more specifically in Indonesia. Uh, and a lot of my work um, involved conducting investigative research in the field in places where indigenous communities were being displaced uh, from their lands to make way for oil palm plantations, mining projects, sometimes also conservation areas or protected areas. And um, so spending extended periods of time in the field documenting how these transformations were reshaping their relationships to land and uh, to each other and uh, to their cultures to their subsistence and to their livelihoods and then all of that investigative research was then um, used in advocacy cases and to government bodies to transnational financing institutions like the world bank to sustainability standards and um, for commodities like palm oil and also um, to um, human rights institutions like the united nations right and then what did um, 
What indigenous groups did you uh, work for or work with, I should say, work with in Indonesia and what parts of Indonesia were they? Mm, sure. Um, so I worked with indigenous peoples uh, across the archipelago, but primarily in Sumatra, in Borneo, and in West Papua, um, which are regions of Indonesia where most of the industrial oil palm expansion is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked with a number of different communities, um, different um, groups within the Dayak peoples um, of Sumatra. Uh, and then in West Papua, I was working primarily with the indigenous Marind peoples um, who inhabit the sort of southern lowland area of um, the province of West Papua. Now, I think a lot of listeners understand, you know, theoretically about the palm oil industry. Look, it, it came to me with a FUD when I was in Malaysia years ago and uh, travelled from north to south and all you saw was just palm oil mm-hmm. plantations. So what's happening in these areas? Yes, gosh, I'm, I'm just I'm getting a flashback to flying into Kuala Lumpur and, and visualizing exactly what you're describing, the sort of sea of oil palm mm. underneath you, um, which looks lovely and green and orderly, and sometimes people mistake it for forests, uh, when in fact they are completely anthropogenic, you know, human-made landscapes um, of, of monocrops. Um, so, I mean, there's a whole range of different transformations, some social, some environmental, that are happening in the places where forests are being replaced uh, with oil palm. Uh, I mean, environmentally speaking, um, the impacts on biodiversity, on wildlife, on already endangered species are really um, extreme um, as a result of the loss of their native habitats. Um, so scores of different organisms are being driven to the brink of extinction or beyond. Um, and then in social terms, um, the, the impacts are, are particularly pronounced for rural communities, including indigenous peoples, who have traditionally depended on the forest for their everyday subsistence and livelihoods, and who are now either being displaced out of their lands um, to make way for private concessions of oil palm, or who are being forcefully incorporated into the palm oil sector as uh, laborers and as workers, often for um, you know derisory pay and under extremely exploitative labor conditions. And who owns these huge plantations? Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they are mega scalar, uh, Joe. I, mean, we're I know, I know. They're just <laughs> extraordinarily, that's what I'm saying. Who are the people behind it? What corporations, organizations? Mm. Yeah, so um, certainly in Indonesia, there's a patchwork or a mix of you know domestic and international corporations. Some Indonesian, um, but some also uh, from Malaysia or Singapore, which are kind of the um, you know financial sources for a lot of the agribusiness sector. So I'm thinking companies like Sinar Mas, Golden Agri Resources, Wilmar, amongst others, big big names that really monopolise and uh, most of the palm oil production, processing, and refining process. Um, and then in terms of the funding, I mean, a lot of it comes from governments um, that are, you know, very much seeing in oil palm the hope for rural development, economic advancement and social progress. Um, you know, those are sort of buzzwords and the kind of rhetoric that often comes with oil palm projects. Uh, but there's also finance, financing from, um, you know, UN bodies like the World Bank and the International Financing Corporation that are also supporting these projects as part of achieving the Millennium Development Goals, right? Um, and, you know, addressing issues of poverty and, and impoverishment in rural areas of the Global South. So a bit of a patchwork of Global North and Global South uh, state and corporate institutions at play. So the Indigenous people you work with, is, was their fate the same as Indigenous people in Australia where they were basically rounded up and placed in settlements outside their uh, home areas? Yeah, there's a lot of similarities, certainly, in the context of these two world regions that have, you know, very much been and continue to be subject to the violence of settler colonization. And so in West Papua, particularly, um, you know, a region that's been settler colonized um, since at least the early 1960s, if not earlier, um, we've seen very similar dynamics of displacement and the establishment of, you know, reservations of thoughts or what used to be called civilizational centers where indigenous peoples and particularly their children would be rounded up and then, you know, educated according to what colonial forces saw as, you know, proper education or modern education systems. Um, you know, the loss of the environment is often, you know, connected in turn to deeply colonial 
um, discourses around hunter-gathering as a primitive, backward way of life and as agriculture as a more modern or sort of um, advanced way of being in the world. So very similar kind of um, discourses are at play in both contexts, for sure. Add to that also the deeply racialized dynamics of a place like West Papua, which is home to Melanesian people who self-identify as black and Melanesian and not Southeast Asian. And again, there are some um, strong redolences of racial dynamics also at play here in Australia. So, when did you first go to West Papua? So, I first visited West Papua in 2011, uh, back when I was working as a project officer for the Forest People's Program, this uh, environmental and social NGO based out of the UK. Um, and then I, uh, re- I spent you know, 18 months uh, in West Papua after 2011 uh, conducting ethnographic fieldwork as part of a doctoral project um, that I was undertaking here in Sydney. Who did you bribe to get that permit? <laughs> I mean, that's that's an extra that's an extraordinary long time for the Indonesian government to let any foreigner uh, into West Papua. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't have to tell um, us, but it's interesting that you're actually able. Is it because maybe because uh, you, you're a relatively young woman? They didn't take you seriously, and they said, "Oh, yeah, she's just going there. Give her, give her the permit. Let's forget about her." Or yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a mix of different factors, Joe. Mm. Um, you know, I did originally try to do the right thing. You're not supposed to apply for a research permit to conduct research in Indonesia. And, you know, I was advised strongly against doing the right thing because it would only put me in the limelight or under the radar of the government in a way that, you know, was not going to be helpful in any way. Um, but I wanted to do the right thing, so I applied for this research permit with the government. It was immediately rejected. Um, and, of course, then I still went ahead and did the research, right. um, which obviously, you know, didn't sit well with uh, with the Indonesian authorities but there was there were multiple things that did make it possible and, and more than possible also safe to the communities whom I was learning from and living with um, one as you say the fact that I was a young woman meant that I wasn't taken quite as seriously as a researcher and scholar um, the second is that I'm Eurasian so I look Indonesian and I speak Indonesian which did allow me to get through um, you know in a way that if I'd been you know white uh, would have been very very different so language skills and my appearance uh, played a part. Um, but more than anything, I think uh, it was the fact that my, my research was sponsored by local NGOs and humanitarian branches of the Catholic Church in West Papua, who really did a huge amount of the legwork, the behind-the-scenes legwork in making sure I could get the documents I needed and do the research I, I, I wanted to do um, without incurring negative reprisals, either for myself or for the indigenous marine communities who were hosting me. You're listening to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Right, so tell us about the Marin community. So the marine community, um, the people whom I've had the immense privilege to learn from and think with um, and become otherwise in the last decade, um, they're an indigenous Papuan people of the southern lowlands of West Papua. Uh, they number around 600 households um, and they occupy a vast territory of forests, mangroves, swamps and savanna. Um, within which are embedded all kinds of plants and animals whom Marines consider to be their relatives, their kin, their siblings, their grandparents. And so we're talking a very multi-species sort of society in which nature is society and social. Um, the Marind are hunter-gatherers traditionally. Um, they depend primarily on the forest for their hunting, fishing, and gathering activities. Um, and now they've been, you know, m- many of them have converted to Catholicism and Protestantism um, following Dutch occupation and, and missionization, but they still very much maintain what one might call animist beliefs um, in the sense that they perceive the forest to be this animate living realm populated by beings, by persons, plants and animals who are kin and relatives um, before anything else. So obviously you didn't stay in five-star hotels. Um, <laughs> what was life like living amongst that community? Hmm. Um, so I suppose the 18 months or so that I spent 
living in rural Meralke with Marind um, was sort of divided equally between the spaces of the village um, where Marind had been sedentarized since the Dutch period uh, and then um, spending time with Marind in the forest itself, um, often in the context of hunting and fishing and foraging activities, but also to go and visit sacred sites, ceremonial graveyards, um, you know, sacred forests and so forth. Um, so the village and the forest were the primary spaces where I was residing in villages and sort of makeshift huts and then in the forest primarily bivouacking uh, and camping in Sago Grove um, and in mangrove areas um, and in patches of savannah um, and, and other forest spaces. Did you ever feel threatened by the military authorities because obviously the military prev- mm. presence in West Papua is enormous. I understand today there's yeah. One Indonesian troop stationed in West Papua for every adult West Papuan male. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's an incredibly militarized part. Of Indonesia, Meraki is also borders with Papua New Guinea, so the geopolitics of that particular region make it all the more uh, subject to military surveillance. Um, I remember driving on a motorbike from Merauke City to the villages, there were 16 different military posts along the way and we, we would change motorbike between each post to not be recognised, uh, you know, along the way. It was really, um, you know, a very oppressive, pervasive um, sort of atmosphere, I suppose. Um, so the threats were certainly very palpable in the village and in the plantations. Um, the plantations are privately owned. Many of them um, are, uh, you know, guarded or monitored by military uh, patrols who are hired and working in collusion with the palm oil corporations. Um, so the villages and plantation were not safe spaces to be. Um, the only place that did afford some sense or feeling of freedom, and this is the way Marin themselves talk about it, was the forest. Um, it was a place where you could get away from the military, get away from the oil palm, get away from the state, you know, infrastructures um, and experience, you know, a sense of autonomy uh, in the company of, of, of the forest and its diverse beings. Hmm. You're an extraordinary human being. Not only are you a brilliant intellect, you're willing to rough it. You're not one of these, um, what I call, um, click activists, you know. You click the button, you say, oh, I support that, and that's the end of that. You went out there, out of your way. Did you get sick during that period? Ah, did I get sick? Mm. Or did you take malaria tablets and you were right there, or...? No, I, I actually didn't take malaria tablets because, mm. you know, as, as an anthropologist, you know, I'm always interested to try to understand how the world feels like from another person's perspective, another culture's perspective. And actually, I was partly hoping to get malaria because then I would have had an insight into all the ways in which Marin themselves understand the disease and the sort of traditional healing practices involved. Um, so that, that, that's how anthropologists sort of approach, um, you know, exp- the experience of of being in the field. Um, I mm. didn't get sick, um, although now that I think about it, um, water pollution, which is one of the major consequences of industrial plantation expansion, the contamination of waterways, did uh, cause a lot of problems um, in terms of digestion and so forth, not just for me, but for everyone in the villages, uh, because um, their bathing and drinking water was full of these toxins and chemicals and effluents that were filtering in through from the processing mill and from the plantations themselves. So water pollution and associated diseases and diarrhea particularly um, were certainly a big part of everyday life in, in rural Merauke. To a large degree, well, you're accepted um, by these indigenous people, these indigenous groups, because basically your research was supported by the Catholic Church, which is a very important component of their uh, survival mechanism. And certainly the endorsement and the support of the Catholic Church uh, was a big part of building, you know, good relationships with these communities. Uh, But I think that the main reason why they were willing to accept me, um, often at great risk uh, to them, uh, was that they saw in my connections, in my power and privilege um, as a foreign researcher, the potential for their stories to be heard outside of Papua um, and to be heeded by international audiences who know little about what's happening on the ground. Um, So, you know, me being hosted came with a big responsibility to do justice to that generosity on their part. And part of that generosity, part of that justice I've tried to put into practice by sharing the stories and the experiences and the knowledge in my writing. Well, that's right. If you don't share the knowledge, you're just another bloody researcher. Absolutely. <laughs> and there's too many Absolutely. Of, there's too many of them out there. You know, they go in, do their research and forget about the people. 
that they've, exactly. they've made their reputation from. It happens over and over again. Now, Absolutely. getting back... Now, I was going to say, it's a deeply extractive approach to knowledge, um, and in that sense, it's also very colonial. Oh, exceptionally added. colonial, yeah. yes. Now, look, um, bring the clock forward. Now, you are coming to Melbourne on Sunday, the 11th, are you? That is correct, yes. Wonderful. Now, I'm the coordinator for the West Papa Rent Collective, and the um, uh, we've been paying the rent. Well, not me. Well, the collective has been paying the rent on the West Papua office now for over eight mm. years, and uh, we're very delighted to see that you're coming on Sunday. But I'd also like to invite all the listeners to the program, the whole five million of them, to come along on Sunday. There's a free lunch at one p.m. prepared by the uh, West Papuan um, Food Group, and then at two p.m. we're going to have the launch. I assume this is a Melbourne launch. I assume it's already been launched, has it, Sophie? Or is this the first launch? Um, it was launched um, at a small gathering in Sydney a couple of weeks ago. No, oh, that um, doesn't matter. It's just Sydney. It doesn't matter. It's just it is like, no, <laughs> <laughs> This one, to be honest with you, Joe, this one means a lot and in some ways means more precisely because it's going to be in conversation with Papuan activists and organisations and representatives. Um, and so this is, this is a very, very precious space for me and I'm really, really grateful for the opportunity. Well, I'm grateful that the uh, people in the office found you. I mean, uh, mm. it's extraordinary the the uh, talent which they find there and the people that have been to West Papua. But mm. so it's the book launch will be at 2 p.m. Lunch at 1, book launch at 2, and then at 3 we have a auction. And obviously all this is, uh, you know, your bait to get new members for the uh, West Papua Rent Collective. You understand that, Sophie, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah, human bait, human bait. <laughs> and uh, it's at uh, 838 Collins Street, Docklands. And uh, you can just come to the front and then walk around the back and there's a big meeting room, food area, and you'll see lots of people there. Uh, but the great thing, which I'm really excited about, and I want one of these books, is that you're actually uh, we actually have books there for sale. Absolutely, and they're going to actually be at a bit of a discount compared to Amazon, so well worth picking up a copy of the launch. It is, and uh, and uh, I assume you will be signing every book that's sold. If, if so requested, then I will. And, well, you've just been requested. I'm sorry, you've just been requested. You, you can't have an author there and a book there <laughs> and not have you write scribble a few words in for people because obviously uh, it's an important book. So it's called In the Shadow of the Palms. Can you tell us the guts of your um, presentation? Sure. Um, So I'm going to speak for 15 or 20 minutes or so and just give um, the audience a bit of insight into um, where the story of the book unfolds, who are its key protagonists, both human and other than human. And then I'm going to share some of the main insights that come out from the book in terms of thinking about the impact of settler colonization, racial discrimination, and aggregate expansion for West Papuan peoples and for West Papuan places and for West Papuan futures. Um, and in doing that, I'm also going to try to invite readers to think about the story of Marind and Papua today in the bigger context of the plantation as this deeply colonial, extractive industry that has plagued the world um, really since the beginning of imperialism. Um, and to think about how Marind, you know, today live in the shadow of the palms, as the book title suggests, but all of us actually, no matter where we call home or where we're based, live in the shadow of the plantation as consumers, um, as dwellers of a wounded planet, uh, and also as participants in determining what the future of this planet will look like for its different people, human and non-human. So that's a bit of a gist as to where the conversation will go. Hmm. It's quite extraordinary the role the Sago palm, which is the indigenous palm, mm. plays in the life of uh, the West Papuans. Could you explain to us mere mortals how important that is and uh, to Indigenous people in West Papuans, especially those living in the forest who haven't been urbanised. Mm, absolutely, Joe. Um, it's, it's really great that you bring that up because, you know, the original title of the book was In the Shadow of the Palm, and I was thinking specifically of oil palm at the time, and then it struck me over the course of the research that, of course, it's a story of two palms, not just the one, the sago palm and the oil palm. Um, the sago palm, it's the source of the main starch for many Papuan peoples, uh, sago flour. 
But the plant is also so much more than just the source of food. Um, it's considered to be a relative. Um, it's imbued with all kinds of motherly, caring, feminine qualities. Um, when the trunk swells, when it fills with sago flower, it's said to be pregnant. Um, it's a plant that Marin children share a date of birth with and sometimes even a name. So plants and people literally follow each other's life course um, from the moment of birth to the moment of death. Um, the sago palm is also a plant that is said to connect Papuans to other Melanesian peoples um, who also rely on sago for their everyday subsistence. Um, and Marin call themselves the sago people. So there's a very strong Melanesian-wide connection there through this particular plant. Um, and it's also a sacred plant. It's, it's created by ancestral spirits. It's said to be animate, uh, sentient. Um, so in all of these different kinds of ways, it's an incredibly significant plant and an incredibly significant person. Yes, and like most academics, you don't like blowing your own trumpet, so I'm going to blow it for you. If that's <laughs> Because I understand In the Shadow of the Palms won the Duke University Press Scholars of Colour First Book Award in 2021. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. And the John Legg Prize for Best Feces in Asian Studies in 2020. And the 2019 Australian Anthropological Society PhD Thesis Prize. Is that correct? That is it. And that, that is it. That's it? Well, I think I think on the 11th, that's Sunday the 11th, you'll, we will honour you with a prize. We'll make one up. Oh. We will make one up. Because as you said, you are going to an office which is pivotal to the West Papua independence struggle around the world. And... Uh, you will meet not just West Papuan refugees, but people, you know, who've done, who've, you know, given years to this struggle, who live in Australia, because it's just ordinary people. See, you may find this very hard to understand, but Twiggy Forest doesn't donate to the West Papuan Rent Collective Appeal, neither does the Prime Minister or Mr Andrews or anybody of any consequence. That's what they think. But we have the most consequential donations. People, you know, basic wage, minimum wage, social security benefits, they donate a dollar a day to keep the office open, to keep that struggle going. Do you find it extraordinary? Here we are in Australia. I know you've only been here since 2015, but don't you find it extraordinary? Here we are. We train Indonesian troops at our expense to go back to West Papua and, you know, dominate that society. We... We see 500,000 people dying directly and indirectly because of the occupation in the last 60 years, and we know everything about the war in the Ukraine, but nobody seems to know anything about what's happening 70 kilometres from the Australian mainland. Do you find that extraordinary? I must say I do, and I must, I must admit I was really shocked when I realised that upon coming to Australia, given the geographical proximity and the incredibly, you know, strong historical connections between Australia and, and, and Indonesia and, you know, West Papua, um, that that awareness isn't anywhere as prevalent as I, as I would have thought it would have been. Um, I mean, I'm still surprised. Even today, I give talks in academic circles, and I explicitly note that I'm talking about West Papua, the, the colonized part of New Guinea. And still, a lot of the time, people think I'm talking about Papua New Guinea uh, and don't realize that there is this other half <laughs> that is still colonized. So it, it's, it, is, it is very sobering and something that really needs to be remedied. I'll give you an example of how strong government and opposition policy has been over the years regarding ignoring the West Papuan uh, struggle. Um, about five years ago, a West Papuan activist uh, died in a bicycle accident in Darwin. And a senator at that particular point in time, who's now died, wanted to put in a condolence motion, which is not unusual in the Senate, to acknowledge the work she'd done. And both the Australian Labor Party, which was in opposition, and the Liberal National Party refused support the condolence motion unless the word West Papua was removed from the condolence motion. And uh, he refused, obviously, to remove the word West Papua because it would have uh, made a mockery of the whole business. And that, that, that's the extent uh, of what's happening in this country today. It's just extraordinary. It reminds me of, I don't know if you remember the Bougainville struggle. Did you ever hear about the Bougainville independence yeah. struggle where over 50,000 people died in a very small island of... And then it's the same story. There was no interest, no media reports, no outrage, nothing. You know, and, and I find it—I just find it extraordinary that we continue on this as if we're petrified of Indonesia. 
And in many regards, Indonesia, the only good thing about the Indonesian military that's only good for is keeping its own people down. Because I assume in Sumatra, Kalimantan and other areas where there are First, Na- uh, First Nations presence that um, the Indonesian forces are out in force. Absolutely, absolutely, no, for sure. It, it's, it certainly is not a part of the world or, or a struggle that uh, gains anywhere as much traction uh, and public awareness as it should. Um, I think there are some really deep-seated vested interests in maintaining relations with Indonesia that come at the expense of the well-being of, 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 of local Papuans. Um, and, you know, even in Indonesia, I mean, there are some staunch Indonesian activists who are very involved in seeking, you know, human rights lawyers like Veronika Koman, for instance, who is herself Chinese-Indonesian, and who are also subject to exactly the kinds of harassment um, and and surveillance and and, and oppression on the part of government um, because they're so invested and involved in in bringing the West Papuan cause to the public gaze. Mm. I just find it extraordinary. I mean, when we, Mm. my late wife and I first met West Papuan activists here in Melbourne about nine years ago, we actually met in a tiny little lounge room, you know, of a rented premises, and that was their uh, uh, their office. We just couldn't believe it, and that's why we went ahead and organised the West Papuan Rent Collective to, you know, an office in Collins Street, in Docklands, which is one of the premier streets, in inverted commas, in Melbourne, because we, we think of the office as a de facto embassy and as an organising force around the world, because I don't think most people realise there are hardly any other offices outside, well there aren't any in West Papua because you get jailed immediately but outside West Papua promoting West Papua independence, it's just extraordinary Yeah, yeah, yeah Can you tell us us a little bit about the transmigration program that has made the West Papuans strangers in their own land? Sure, yeah, such an important part of the sort of um, dynamics of of, of the place. Um, So, yeah, transmigration, I mean, it's taken two forms. Um, The earlier phases of transmigration, um, uh, you know, under Dutch and then Indonesian rule were state-endorsed or state-enforced, where peoples were being moved from overly overpopulated parts of Indonesia to West Papua, um, based on this assumption that Papua was sort of, you know, underpopulated and this vast expanse of underutilized and underdeveloped land. Ah, look, it's the Terra Nullius concept. We were very good at that here in Australia. (laughs) Yes, you're um, experts of sorts, I hear. (laughs) Yes, we are. Exactly. The, 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 this imaginary of terra nullius, Joe, I mean, it, it continues to be invoked now with the expansion of oil palm, um, you know, where oil palm plantations are framed as a remedy to these so-called idle, uh, unproductive, unused lands just sitting there waiting to be developed. And that applies not just to the land, but of course, also to the people, right? Um, so it's terra nullius and also homo nullius, if you mm. wish. Um, so transmigration now is more is spontaneous. Um, so people are still moving to West Papua from Java, particularly, um, to you know set up a living. They're allocated two hectares of land each. Um, they're not necessarily living the life. You know they're they're quite impoverished. But the big problem is, of course, is that transmigration settlements are being established on lands that are owned, um, used, and managed by indigenous Papuan peoples. Um, so the inter-ethnic conflicts and tensions that arise are very significant, all compounded with the fact that often it does tend to be transmigrants who are privileged or prioritized when it comes to employment, for instance, or um, political office and so forth. Um, So again, some big uh, structural disparities and inequities are at play and accompanying this demographic dilution of Papuans as they become minorities on their own land. Yes, so if you're at the height, I think you're at the height of your intellectual prowess and activism, you're at that brilliant age where you've got the experience so what have you got on the plate for the next few years that you can tell us i know some things you won't be able to tell us but what can you tell us Mm. um well thank you so much for this incredibly um humbling uh comments joe i i keep learning from Papuans, you know what activism means how one can do it well and how what it means to think and act coalitionally in support of these causes so it's very much a work in progress for me um and i am a student and apprentice of Papuans themselves in that regard um i mean for me you know a book launch like the one that we're holding next week um the chance to meet with members of the rain west Papua rain collective uh, to engage with Papuan refugees and um, that for me is the next step it's to continue learning to continue rethinking my assumptions and my my approaches in light of 
of you know Papua's knowledges and experiences and aspirations, um, and I think that's going to be a lifelong commitment. Um, I mean, I should also say that I am now blacklisted from Indonesia as a result of this oh, and as a result of the research. Well, I'm so. blacklisted from Indonesia. So that's fine. Right. Don't worry right. about it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a badge of honour. You should have a little badge saying blacklisted China, blacklisted Indonesia. Anywhere else you want to be blacklisted? blacklisted? There's a list. There's a list. Well, we'll ask you about the list when you come here. So, are you going to stay here? Well, I should say, are you going to stay in Sydney or are you going to flit around the world somewhere else, you know? Mm. I can see the wonderlust... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I must say, I have really loved, um, I love living in Australia. I, I, Europe has its charms, but Australia has different histories and stories um, to offer. So I'm, I'm actually really happy living here, and I would like to stay here. Um, the proximity, of course, to, to Indonesia, the fact that there is a significant West Papuan community here, you know, does offer things for the future in terms of research and activism that wouldn't be possible in other places. Um, so for those reasons, I'd be very, very happy to stay here. Um, and, you know, even if I can't go back to Papua in the immediate future, um, you know, we can communicate with, I am communicating and very much in touch with the communities over WhatsApp and Facebook and so on. So those conversations are continuing. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm holding out hope that um, things can possibly change in the future um, and that I'll be able to return to, to this place that has been, that has changed me and transformed me in ways that vastly transcend the scope of scholarly or academic practice. Um, so horizons may open up in the future. And I want to hold on to that hope. Oh, that's good. Now, um, can I give you some unsolicited advice? That's my specialty, giving people unsolicited advice. Have you taken out Australian citizenship yet? It's a work in progress. Well, please take it out because you realise that permanent residents can be expelled as undesirable aliens. Is that right? You've got no protection. There are people expelled from this country, especially during the nine years of Liberal National Party government, to that extraordinary number of people expelled. People who'd come here at the age of two from New Zealand, you know, involved in some type of criminal activity, which means more than a one-year jail sentence, and then sent back at the age of 40 to a society where there were no relatives. So I'm being, I'm being very serious. I think if you want to live in Australia long-term and you want to conduct these type of activities, you really need to become a citizen. Well, thank you for sharing that advice. Um, I'm not even a PR yet. I'm still on a temporary visa, so I'm probably even more precarious. Oh, you, you, we, can, <laughs> we can kick people like you out any time we like. Now, Sophie, I'm looking forward to seeing you on Sunday the 11th of September at the West Papuan office and the meeting room downstairs. Now, if you can't make it in person to 838 Collins Street, Docklands, lunch at 1 p.m., 2 p.m. I'll be there. 2 p.m., not you, other people listening. If you can't make it, you'll make it personally. You better. I've built you up. You know, I, can, I can break you down. No, I'm just kidding. Look, if you can't make it personally, now, these people are really, really online. You can join Zoom and you can register at www.trytrybooking.com forward slash capital B, capital Z, capital Y, capital T, capital H, or go to the West Papuan uh, office website. So, Sophie, make sure you catch the flight the day before. You know, it's, you can get stuck in airports these days. Sounds good. I will make sure to be there. Thank All you right. so much for this wonderful conversation. I'm so excited to meet you in person in the next week or so. Uh, forget about me. I'm just an old man. It's all the wonderful, young, vibrant people you'll meet there. That, that's important. But I do want a copy of the book, and I've got $50 set aside for it. I think it's $45. And if you don't sign it, I'm going to cry, okay? <laughs> okay. God forbid. <laughs> Thank you very much, Sophie Chow. Thank you very much, Kelly Whitworth, for uh, doing all the technical Pleasure. Work. Thanks for speaking with us, Sophie. Thank you so much, Kelly. It was an absolute pleasure to do a conversation. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.